This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Welcome to Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. This is your host, Tim Link, and I'm so glad you're joining us today. we got a wonderful, wonderful show, a fantastic author, and uh, the, the latest book is just uh, off the charts, so I'm excited to talk to uh, her about that. It's Lynn Hugo, where she's the award-winning author of uh, A Matter of Mercy and uh, many, many other books, and her latest book's called The Language of Kin, K-I-N. So we're going to pick her brain a little bit about that, the title, the, uh, the book itself, and all the wonderful animals inside. And then, of course, we'll circle back, as always, and talk to Lynn about her writing styles and uh, the super ease it was for her to write this book. <laughs> or not. So, everybody hang tight. We'll come back right after this commercial break. You're listening to Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. Take a bite out of your competition. Advertise your business with an ad in Pet Life Radio podcasts and radio shows. There is no other pet-related media that is as large and reaches more pet parents and pet lovers than Pet Life Radio. With over 7 million monthly listeners, Pet Life Radio podcasts are available on all major podcast platforms. And our live radio stream goes out to over 250 million subscribers on iHeartRadio, Odyssey, TuneIn, and other streaming apps. For more information on how you can advertise on the number one pet podcast and radio network, visit PetLifeRadio.com slash advertise today. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. Uh, joining me is author Lynn Hugo. Lynn is the award-winning author of A Matter of Mercy. She's also the uh, National Endowment for the Arts Fellowship recipient and has received numerous awards and uh, for all of her uh, various books and uh, all the uh, fiction books, the novels, everything that she's done. She's a brilliant, brilliant writer, and we're excited to talk to her about her latest book, The Language of Kin. Lynn, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm really honored to be with you. Oh, well, thank you. We appreciate it. Honors all ours for sure. And uh, I was mentioning offline the book. I won't give all the highlights, but it's got a wonderful animal that's near and dear to my heart on the cover. So that always catches my eye right away. And then, of course, the novel's fantastic. And the novel's called The Language of Kin. Tell us a, a little bit about the, the book and, and how it came about without giving away all the secrets. All right. The Language of Kin is about the a fundamental ethical conflict between two zookeepers, their names are Kate and Mark, and it's over how to help a young, terrified chimpanzee acclimate to a fictional zoo, which is set in Dayton. Eve had been caught as a baby in Uganda and sold to an American medical lab where she was traumatized by years of painful medical experiments. No, I don't like that part of the book. <laughs> but I, The book doesn't focus on that, as you know. Yes. So tell us a little bit about some of the, the highlights without giving away the whole story. And then obviously the, the conflicts between the two and their ideology on how to handle matters. And then I know you've got some other critters in the book as well. So maybe you want to give them their, their just due. The ethical conflict has to do with what actually does exist in this world, it is that on one hand, zookeepers, particularly with regard to primates, believe that they should be allowed to live 
in a very naturalized area with minimal human intervention and be in their social groups. And in, normally in the wild, they they parent cooperatively. They teach each other how to use tools, meaning sticks to forage for ants, and they climb and they are very, very bonded to each other. And on the other hand, that, well, that group also believes sanctuaries are far preferable to zoos. And they also believe that really the best thing to do is to stop habitat destruction so that they're not in captivity at all. That is the primary goal, to avoid zoos and even sanctuaries and keep them out of captivity, that they just don't belong in captivity. But the preference would be a sanctuary over a zoo. Then the, on the other hand, there is a significant group of primatologists who believe that human greed is, is simply unavoidable and that zoos and even sanctuaries are a reasonable finger in the dike of extinction and that making zoos and sanctuaries the very best they can be is the way to go. So that's the ethical conflict. And both are very strongly held and reasonable, I think. And most people think those are reasonably held beliefs. That's perfect. We'll get to the other critters in the book here, here in a little bit. But uh, it brings up a great point, and the book does uh, does it justice with the, the uh, two keepers that are in the book in the fact that I debate this quite often or have others debate this on my behalf because I in my the work that I do, I work with zoos. I work with wildlife sanctuaries. I work with rehabilitation and uh, et cetera, et cetera. And my viewpoint, you know, I maybe it's how I am in general. I, I take a gray approach to most everything because I think there's a little bit of truth in just about everything. And I understand that, you know, if it's possible for the, the primates and uh, the rest of the animals to be in their natural habitat, then that's the way it should be. And we should, you know, get away from the greed and the destruction that we're causing as humans. Um, on the other side, you know, the, the zoos and the sanctuaries do provide a valuable service. And even from an educational standpoint, if it's done right, oftentimes, you know, there are individuals, special children in uh, inner cities that would never experience an animal other than maybe a dog or a cat or, uh, you know, a squirrel that's coming down the path, but they never get to experience the, the understanding of what's going on with the animals, get to see them, get to interface with them and develop a love for them. So it is a great debate. I won't ask you if you don't want to answer <laughs> where you draw the line or if there is one, but uh, I think it's a great debate in how you intertwine that in, into the, the uh, content of the book. I tried really hard not to take a position, but to fairly represent both sides, because I think it's, it's, it's such a difficult ethical question. Should primates have to essentially sacrifice a normal life in order to educate humans. I don't know the answer to that. And I get your point. And it, there, they certainly, there is a real educational purpose. A lot of sanctuaries rarely allow visitors. So we're really talking about zoos, I think. And I, you know, I, I don't know the answer. And certainly there are some species of animals that don't live in social groups. And it's perhaps less of a sacrifice for them to be in a zoo. Do you get, you know what I mean? Yeah, I understand. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's not, you know, we have to, you know, my disclaimer on it is we know there are zoos out there uh, that are just for money making. The conditions and things that are going on and how they treat the animals is questionable at best. And then just from the pure education standpoint, you know, you have to have an environment and have to have individuals there that actually know the animals and can actually educate people when they go to see the animals. Absolutely. But there are others that are just, uh, you know, world-class type of situations where you do have a chance to learn and, and become educated and learn new things about animals and uh, actually interface and get to see them. I couldn't agree with you more. And one of the things I made a real attempt to present from the point of view of one of the zookeepers in the novel is places like the Philadelphia Zoo that have that innovative Zoo 360, where they've put in overhead trails and really naturalized the environment so that the animals come as close as possible to the way they would live in the wild. And some zoos are doing amazing things with trying to naturalize the environment for their animals. So I, I understand exactly what you're saying, and that does make really good sense. Yeah, absolutely. So the content of the novel, that always it always fascinates me when I'm talking to an author and how they came about the idea. You know, is, is it something that's been brewing for quite a while? Is it something you stopped and started and put it on the shelf for a little bit and pulled back down? Or is it a recent topic that's caught your eye and you decided, mm, I'm going to give a spin on this myself? Well, a little bit of all of that. I've always been really interested in animal, animal well-being, and the human-animal connection particularly. One of my earlier books is titled uh, Where the Trail Grows Faint, A Year in the Life of a, a Therapy Dog Team. When I worked in a nursing home with my trained for therapy work, Labrador Retriever, and saw really saw a lot about the benefits of the human-animal connection and human-animal communication. And that interested me. And I have a dear friend uh, here in Oxford who is a professor, who is a primatologist. And I was speaking with her and she's done a lot of field work in Kenya and Uganda with chimpanzees. So that got me very interested. And I'm interested in the effects of climate change on habitat destruction. So it was really all of that. And one of my careers that I was that I did full time for years and is no longer my primary occupation. I, my primary occupation now is novelist, but um, I'm I'm still a, a licensed therapist. So communication and Human-to-human -human communication is also a strong connections and language and how we use it and misuse it and how it connects us and fails to connect us sometimes. That's also an extremely important issue to me. So all of those things came together. Yeah, and I think it's fascinating you mentioned that because uh, you know I often compare human to human communication, human to animal communication, and animal to animal communication. And animals by far are superior than us. I have learned that if we didn't have thumbs, 
I think we, they would be ruling the world. I think that's the key because it's it's true because we oftentimes I know you you talked about nonverbal communication and so whether we're talking about you know telepathic communication or whether we're talking about just uh, signs that uh, you know animal will give you like a facial expression or a gesture or, or you know uh, a body position these type of things these are all sort of nonverbal communications animals do this on a daily basis and they accept that and they understand that. Where oftentimes us humans, we're taught to communicate in a verbal way in, in, in the U.S. Uh, as close to English as we possibly can. Uh, and uh, we often <laughs> right. miss those. Yeah, we miss those signs. You know, we miss those signs, whether it's it's movements and motions or whether it's just that getting in the quiet zone and, and tapping in at a telepathic level. Uh, the signs of not only communicating with our animals at a deeper level. But also communicating with each other and and understanding what each other are about. I completely agree with you about that. I think that's entirely correct. So we need to go back to uh, being like the animals. I've I've said it once. I've said it a thousand times. You got to live a dog life, or in this case, a chimpanzee's life. That's what we need to do to be able to communicate. All right, we're going to take a uh, quick commercial break. Uh, We'll come back after the break and talk to uh, Lynn Hugo a little bit more about her book, The Language of Kin, and talk to her about her, her writing in general and her writing styles. So everybody, hang tight. We'll come back right for this commercial break. You're listening to Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. Hi, this is Tim Link, animal communicator and pet expert and host of Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. Have you ever wanted to know what your pet is really thinking? Do you want to find out if they truly understand what you're trying to tell them? Ever wish you could build a better understanding and closer relationship with your pet? Well, now you can. Learning to communicate with animals is a four-part on-demand workshop. In the workshop, you'll learn the essential techniques that are necessary to communicate with animals, including what is animal communication, breathing correctly to achieve the perfect state to communicate with your animals at a deeper level, using guided meditation exercises and method to communicate with animals, and how to send and receive information from your animals. So if you're wanting to learn how to communicate and connect with your animals at a deeper level, visit PetLifeRadio.com forward slash workshop and purchase and download Learning to Communicate with Animals. You'll be glad you did. PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. Uh, Continuing our conversation with award-winning author Lynn Hugo in her latest book, The Language of Kin, a wonderful, wonderful novel. So we talked about how, Lynn, how sort of the idea and the concept and the fascination, and it sounds like the research came about as well. Tell us a little bit about researching into this as far as uh, zoos, sanctuaries, the animals themselves, and uh, the people you had to, to contact to sort of pick their brain a little bit about it. Well, I wrote this novel during the height of COVID, those several years. So a lot of what I did was interview people on the phone, tremendous amount of reading. I watched videos. I searched the internet for both videos and scientific papers. The scientific papers and veterinary papers were, they were a reach for me because I had to... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Trying to translate them myself. Yeah, they, they need one of those the cliff notes for those, I think, for us, uh, our average folk. <laughs> At I least did, for me. Especially, especially when I was reading veterinary papers on chimp pregnancies and chimp deliveries. 
that was a challenge. And then I did have access to the friend of mine who is a primatologist, and she was kind to introduce me to to another primatologist who has who had experience working in a laboratory, a medical lab, and also had done zoo work as opposed to my my friend here at Miami University who had done, well, they both had done field work in Africa. So I had advice and input from firsthand input in firsthand experts. And then once I had a full draft, they both put me in touch with another primatologist who at the time, well, she still is works in a wildlife, I think it's a wildlife preserve now. But anyway, at the time, she was the director of education at a zoo. And I sent her the completed draft. And this was not somebody that I had had any contact with. She wasn't involved in giving me information or resources. And she read the complete draft and gave me feedback and made a couple of corrections that was very, it was extremely helpful. So then that was Dr. Rusak. And then she also gave me an endorsement as to the accuracy of the novel with regard to the scientific portions of it. I wouldn't even call them scientific. I would say the the accuracy of how things happen in a zoo, because that was important to me. I didn't want to misrepresent, since I've never worked in a zoo, of course, I didn't want to misrepresent, for example, how, how are emergencies handled in a zoo, you know, just animal care in a zoo. That's important. I think if you're going to write a novel that's set in a specific location, and I just think to me, it's important that it be well done and accurate. Yeah, absolutely. You know the the research behind it because you know, the, like you said, it's it this it's not a scientific book, but it has its facts correct. You know, and I love the fact that you went to multiple resources and you actually went to someone to say, "Hey, do I have this right?" You know, Doctor Russick was uh, kind enough to uh, to respond and do an endorsement, which we always love that. But how do you then take all that somewhat scientific? brain stuff in the research, which is very, very important, and turn it into a novel where someone yeah. will, yeah, like you said, we're not drinking eight cups of coffee and we to read through this and we can't figure out what they're talking about anyway. So it's not that way. So how do you blend those two and say, okay, I've got all the good research and I've got all the material that makes this accurate to the best of my knowledge, then how do I make this appealing to someone who wants to sit down and read a good novel? Yeah, I think it's what's important is to weave it in to a story and to just make sure that what is in there is not overwhelming and that it's just, as I said, woven in to give it authenticity, but not make it a, not make it overly didactic. Yeah. So that people just pick up as they're reading what they need to know and what they might want to know too. Exactly. So planting those little little seeds, unbiased seeds, and I, I do have to say that about the book, and um, getting people to think a little bit as they enjoy what they're reading as well, and getting attached to the, the animals as well as uh, the characters that are in the book. Yeah, I wanted people to see what what happens with one particular animal. I think if you get a feeling for one animal's journey, you can care about one animal. A lot. You know what I mean? Yeah. That, and I think people become invested in the story when it has to do with, with certain people and an animal, then it evokes more emotion. And yeah. 
you want to be able to feel something. I think that makes for a good novel too, if it evokes emotion and it makes you it makes you care. Absolutely. So let me ask you then for this particular book, you mentioned you've got wonderful research in there. You've got things to educate people. You've got things in here to touch people, connect with the animals, et cetera, et cetera. Is there a goal? Is there one thing if you said, okay, all that being said, when someone picks up a copy of the book, The Language of Kin, what do you hope they get from the reading through the novel? Uh, I hope that they care and they want to discuss it. I wanted to raise questions for them and have them think think about it, wonder about it, and take it seriously. Because I think ethical questions are really important for all of us. And so I'm not trying to tell anybody what they should believe or what they should conclude. But I think raising the question is really important. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And to think it through and to get the conversation going in our society, especially here in the United States, in my opinion, everything seems to be uh, more black and white. You're on this side or you're on that side. And no matter what the topic is, and, and if you're not on my side on every column, then perhaps you're not on my side at all. That seems to be the mentality. And I think the approach you've taken in the novel here, uh, The Language of Kin, is spot on. You no, know, it gets you're not telling them what to think or do. Here's the information. Here's the the uh, something to connect with. Now think about it a little bit and converse with others. I think my work is often good book club fiction because there's a lot to discuss. There you go. And I like the idea of people thinking and discussing and seeing both sides. I like it. I like it. So you've accomplished that well in the novel for sure. And if you can now uh, write a bunch of other novels to get us talking about other topics that and come to an agreement on things, that would be even better, Lynn. No pressure. <laughs> <laughs> well, this one isn't my first. I usually try to do that. So I really appreciate what you've said. I really do. Thank you. Absolutely. Well, we know you're a skilled novelist and uh, we love all your work. And this one in particular, The Language of Kin is uh, heartfelt and it gets you thinking and it has a chimpanzee on it. So you can't can't go wrong there for sure. <laughs> Thank you, Tim. Thank you. Well, Lynn, where can people find out more about you, uh, all the events, anything going on, all your past novels, all the future stuff you're working on? How's the best way to track Lynn Hugo? Well, I have a website lynnhugo.com and lynn is spelled with an e on the end um, a lot of people miss that which is easy to do but my mother was very insistent on the e on the end of lynn and i have a facebook lynn hugo readers page and instagram lynn hugo author and twitter i'm not very active on twitter but i'm on there those are the best ways and i i do have an occasional blog slash newsletter, and I invite subscribers. I'm also on BookBub, and that's where I review books. So I really invite subscribers to my blog, which is on my website, by the way, and BookBub, if you're interested in my book reviews. But I invite followers anywhere, and I really make an effort to respond to comments and reviews, and I appreciate them greatly. 
Absolutely. So we'll make sure that gets posted. Everybody go take a look at what's going on with Lynn, all of her uh, past great work. And of course, uh, pick up a copy of The Language of Kin, a wonderful, wonderful novel. So Lynn, thank you so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. Congratulations on fantastic job again. And thank uh, you, Tim. yeah, we'll look forward to chatting with you somewhere down the road. I would love that. Thank you again. Very good. All right. Well, we're coming to the end of the show today. I want to thank everyone for listening to Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. I want to thank the producers and sponsors for making this show possible. If you have any questions, comments, ideas, or people you want to hear from on the show, drop us a line or check out the website. It's at PetLifeRadio.com. And while you're there, check out all the other wonderful shows and hosts. It's a cornucopia of fantastic animal content. So everybody take a look at that. So until next time, write a great story about the animals in your life. And who knows, you may be the next guest on Animal Rights on Pet Life Radio. Have a great day. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.